This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. There's going to always be crises, sometimes big like the pandemic or 9-11 and sometimes like a fire that a family barely escapes or a sudden relocation or abuse in the home, like that happens. And I think people forget, this is not a dichotomy. This is life. This is life. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Chat, GPT, AI, and Our Kids with Dr. Tova Klein. Dr. Tova is director of Barnard College Center for Toddler Development and a professor of psychology at Barnard as well. She is the author of How Toddlers Thrive, What Parents Can Do Today for Children Ages 2 to 5 to Plant the Seeds of Lifelong Success, which is available in seven languages. Her three decades of work with parents and young children stems from an interest in the influence parents have on children's foundational and ongoing development, including in times of crisis. Dr. Tova is frequently quoted in the media, including the New York Times, CNBC, CNN, Washington Post, and numerous online venues. She appears on TV and radio, including MSNBC, The Today Show, Nightline, NPR, and Good Morning America, who called her the toddler whisperer. She consults worldwide to programs for children and families, was a developmental advisor to Sesame Street, and is an advisor to Room to Grow, Ubuntu Pathways South Africa, Children's Museum of Manhattan, and Hunts Point Alliance for Children. She lives in New York City with her family. Dr. Tova, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you have been studying and researching little people for a very long time in your brilliant lab. What led you to this interest passion and devotion to this group of people? Yeah. Well, you know, some of that comes just naturally. Um, I always wonder if other people have this, which is that young children always appealed to me. I'm one of those people, like always appealed to me. But when I was actually in high school was sort of my first moment of, huh, that's interesting that that parents are an integral part to young people is that um, I worked with children 
in a summer program. I was, you know, a teenager. It was like my first paid job. And there was a child there who was actually being removed from her mother's care. It's a sad story, right? She was being abused. Mm -hmm. But anytime a limit was set on her at school, you know, something like you can't throw that or you have to sit here and she would, you know, fight the teacher. She was four years old and she would scream for her mother. And that was a real eye opener to me. Like, oh, even for a child whose parent could potentially hurt them in a moment of need, they want this person. And then fast forward, I went to college and it was like the height of attachment research. And Mm -hmm. I got to film strange situations over and over. And that's the paradigm where you're measuring attachment, but it was really new and just starting research. And I was fascinated. That sold me on it. Like that parent matters and I have to really understand Mm -hmm. how and why. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the beginning of it. And I've never left that path. You have not. Um, I also remember in graduate school being really intrigued in learning about object relations theory and attachment theory and similarly how parents could do awful things to their kids and their kids will still spend days uh, days months and lifetimes trying to receive love from yeah. those individuals who are hurting them and it 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 just it's a complex relationship that yeah. that we have what 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 were some of your early findings that you were surprised as it relates to this attachment situation? Yeah, I I think probably, well, I think the good news is that um, in the the study that I was involved in throughout like my entire college, it was my senior honors thesis, you know, was diving into this attachment as the base of sociability, it was called then, now we would say socialization, um, when children were two and three, was that most children are securely attached, mm-hmm. which tells you that there's a lot of play in the system. Like this is not about being right all the time or everybody being happy, but study. And since then, study after study shows this. Right? Most children and a parent, and by parent, it could be a loving caregiver, it could be a grandparent, it could be a stand-in if the parent's not capable of of raising a child, um, is that most children and and their caregiver have a secure enough relationship. So that was one thing that was, I think, reassuring to me, probably surprising, but also reassuring. Um, And that goes on through time. But I think the other piece, I don't know if this was early on or at whatever point, is that there's so much complication in this relationship and yet there's a simple piece to it that basically loving care is what children need. And love can be defined partly in your culture or your temperament, but that's really the basis of it is, am I showing my child responsiveness enough? It doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be perfect. And so I think the more I discovered that over time, I worked with children who were living in homeless shelters back in the 1980s when I was just out of college before I even went to grad school. And I was like, wow, there are people who can protect their children from a lot of harm. And I want to know more about that. Mm -hmm. So I think all Mm -hmm. of those pieces, both 
gave me a really optimistic view that even under really hardship, which is not good for children, it's not good for adults either, but there's still a way for a parent to protect a child. Mm. I thought, oh, what is that? And let Mm -hmm. me see if I can unpack that. And that's what actually propelled me to graduate school. When did the focus on trauma come in in. to this, right? Because of course you're on the East, 9-11. I know you've done a lot of research on the trauma response. So when, like, I'm curious how that evolved to looking at this parent-child dyad and um, within such critical um, traumatic situations. Yeah. Well, I guess I could say, if I really think about it, it's probably a natural part of me, which is like, I was that person growing up, if there was a fire or like, let's say a hurricane and there was damage, I w- always wanted to go see it. It's mm-hmm. like, let's go see what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so something in me is drawn to that. But beyond that, I think this first child, you know, often for those of us who do clinical work, those early people you work with really stick with you. So this child whose name was Emma, who was abused, that always stuck with me. What is that? that she's still drawn to her mother. But also I worked with families in the shelter system in New York, and clearly they were experiencing violence and disruption and all kinds of other things. And I was very interested in the children who are having a hard time and the children who seem to be steady, both. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. when I went to graduate school, um, my plan was to do a whole dissertation on children who were abused or neglected, it was really my advisor who said, this could take you years to get a sample. Why don't we simplify this? Mm -hmm. But, you know, her whole point was you have to know typical development to know, you know, what we consider atypical, like abuse or trauma. Um, But all my clinical training was heavily focused on trauma Mm -hmm. in adults, Mm -hmm. um, as well as in children. And so that's kind of where I went with it. And it was, again, like that, you know, life takes us into a context. It was a time of many childhood AIDS cases. So I worked with families who were suffering from AIDS, parents and children, before we really had a way to give people a life, right? So children who were dying mm-hmm. um, and in pediatric psychology and in some of the cancer units. So I just used it to try to understand human development. Um, mm-hmm. And then I worked with adults who were abuse survivors. Um, and that that's always stuck with me that in order to really understand children, you have to understand what we would call optimal development. And you mm-hmm. have to understand, you know, the crises, whether they're short-term crises or chronic. We have to understand that if we're going to really support children to become healthy, children and adults. How did you, how did you work on the oncology, the pediatric oncology (laughs) unit? I just, as an, as an individual, as a professional, um, you know, having worked with lots of kids who've undergone trauma, I know the toll that that can take. Um, I have not worked with kids who are dying with cancer. How, how did you do that? So, you know, it's, it's interesting you ask that because, um, I was drawn to this idea of how do you support children who are dying? And I'm sure if you want the full answer, it goes back to my childhood, which is that my mother had a sister who died of leukemia at the age of mm-hmm. three, but my mother was a teenager. And so I was, my whole life was about sort of this baby sister 
And then I was born about 10 years after that. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that that has something to do with it. But um, at first I was a volunteer as an undergrad in the pediatric hospital, partly because it was right next to my dorm. And I thought, oh, I'll just volunteer there. It's not, it turns out to be not just when you're dealing with sick mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. But I, I, again, my interest in parents and children, I think a lot of being on those pediatric teams and you're with incredibly devoted, caring people from the doctors to the psychologists, to the nursing nurses, there's an incredible group of people who choose this field. But one of the things that happened in grad school was I thought to myself, I'd like to be a mother one day. And I don't think I could really personally be with children who are dying when I'm a parent. That started to dawn on me the more Mm -hmm. into it I got. And then I did my clinical internship at Boston Children's Hospital, another like incredible place to learn from. And I was, again, working in pediatric AIDS there as well as on some of the cancer units. And I remember thinking, yeah, when I become a parent one day, hoping Mm -hmm. that that would happen, and it did eventually, I don't think I could do this. So it steered me to but what can I learn from this mm-hmm. and take into the realm of supporting all children? Uh, that's a good perspective. And uh, so you did get out before you had little people of your own. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. when I run a program for children and, you know, we tend to, we tend to dichotomize like, oh, there's sort of typical healthy development and then there's atypical or abnormal or now we call it trauma But the two go together. You know, I have, let's say I interact with 50 to 100 families minimally a year. There's going to always be crises, sometimes big like the pandemic or 9-11 and sometimes like a fire that a family barely escapes or a sudden relocation or abuse in the home. Like that happens. And I think people forget this is not a dichotomy. This is life. Right. This is life. Right. And I think also the more we talk about big T's with trauma and little T's, which happen all the time, that integration, I think it humanizes the 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 lived experience for everyone. Right. This idea, yeah. especially as parents these days, right? We're supposed to you know, we don't want our kids to suffer. We don't want our kids to struggle. We don't like it's it's like there's this chalice of success if your kids get through without a lot of bad stuff happening, which we all want. And yet we know those difficult life experiences are also needed to cultivate resilience in life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, really our job is, as you know, as a parent, and this this is maybe the wake up call when we become parents, is not to feel like it's our job to make children happy. And I know that, you know, this soundbite goes out a lot, but if you Mm -hmm. really think about that for a minute, you kind of unpack it. I would say people know how to be happy, even in the hardest circumstances, you can find something that hopefully will make you happy. (laughs) Say that could be a lollipop, you know? Um, But what do I do with those really hard emotions, sadness, anger, bigger emotions, grief. Um, but for children, anger and frustration are the biggies that they mm-hmm. run in. You know, it's like a, almost like a wall at age two. It's like, whoa, mm-hmm. I've got all these ideas, all these things I want to do. And I can't either. I don't have the ability yet, or somebody's telling me, oh, 
I'm going to stop you from running in the street. And I don't like that. So there's anger and frustration is sort of the beginning of the negative emotions. And it's a wake up call for us as parents. I include myself in this when my kids were young. Oh, I have to help them handle that, which means I have to be comfortable with anger, sadness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, the negative emotions. And so um, what we think is our job is actually not our job. I mean, it is our job to love and enjoy them and laugh together with them. But right. it's really our job to say, if you want your child to be able to handle stress on their own, then we have to help them through it, not right. somehow around it. Avoid and it. yeah. And yeah. the pandemic showed us all. We had no choice. It doesn't right. matter where in the world you were. Yes, the, the the quest for happy kids is well-intentioned and misguided, or happy and successful, whatever that means. It's yeah. like this, this buzz line. But it's, it is misguided because it doesn't actually serve them well. And I think for many of us, if we're being honest as parents, first of all, nothing prepares us. Nothing prepares us to experience the emotions of our kids suffering, being ill, being bullied, like nothing. And at the same time, I think a lot of this, I want my child to be successful and happy, comes from our own parental anxiety and discomfort of the yuckiness, the muckiness, that that suffering that is hard for us to tolerate. So we put it on them to be a certain way. Right. So we can be okay. Exactly. Exactly. And I would would just add to that, that we do that partially because we feel like we're good parents. You know, when our children do something well, either they're happy or they achieve something, it's like, oh, what did I do? I supported them. I knew she wanted to pursue that activity and I made sure that you know, she could do it and look at that. And it becomes a reflection on us. Oh, I must be a good parent. Yes. Yes. And then when our child does something shockingly, right? The teacher says, um, can I speak to you? Our first thought is, oh no, to, uh oh, what did I do wrong? Yes. And it's not always right or wrong, right? I mean, children have to be good and they have to be bad. Right. They have to do things well and do things really not well. Mm-hmm. And and again, we I'm dichotomizing it here, right. but we tend to dichotomize it. It goes together. Right. You know, I'm good sometimes, I'm bad sometimes. That's how you avoid shame is not by saying the child's never bad, but like, hey, you don't always listen. Mm-hmm. And yes, I, I get upset and you don't always listen. And sometimes you do listen and it's all part of you. Totally. You're... Yeah, yeah. You're reminding me of a an, of um, a mom that I know, and years ago, so she has three kids, and her two older kids, just kind of these superstars, right? Just good students, great athletes, great social skills, and then the third one um, was neurodiverse and just just more challenging, right? Just like had just spirited. And I remember uh, talking to her and she said, you know, honestly, Dan, before our youngest came of age, I honestly thought that I was the best parent. <laughs> it was so humbling. Yes, I, yes. It, it was like it's we humbling. take credit for stuff that's, I think what we do, we take credit for stuff that probably has very little to do with us. And then we take a ton of credit 
for also the stuff, the negative stuff at times yeah. that has really nothing to do with us yeah. with all that shame and guilt. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, you know, if, if you think about it as a parent, we look at that child and they're a mirror and you know that there is some, there's important mirroring going on when the child yes. reflects you, but and you know that because sometimes, particularly with younger children, they say something or they have a, you know, they they give you this look, you know, like to the side, you think, oh, do I do that? Or yes. I can remember often saying to my husband, like, how did he even learn that? And he would say, how do you do that? <laughs> right. And that's true for modeling good stuff, but it's also true, yes. you know, for not so good stuff that we're sort of, you know, like, yes. ooh. Um, but the children can't be mirrors of us. They can't, if we're in it for our own satisfactions, number one or solely, it's going to hurt the child because you're never going to see who yes. is this child? What does this child want or need yes. at this moment? Because it changes all the time yes. too. And this is why our loyal listeners all know the importance of self-awareness that we talk about so much is like, what is my stuff? What is their stuff? And even if your stuff is alarming to you, it's that's the first opportunity of, of this, like, wow, I got a button right here, or I'm realizing I'm reacting to this because of this reason. And that's just the beginning of so much possibility for oneself as an individual, but as a parent. And what a gift to our kids if we can continue as we grow to increase in our self-awareness and our triggers. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it's oh, yeah. for any parent mm -hmm. listening, it's, it's a hard process and yet it's a must, we must do it yes. to yes. free ourselves as well. But really in the, the name of our children, like I have mm -hmm. to figure out why that child, when she does that really pisses me off. You have to yes. really figure that out. Yes. Okay, I want to start moving to technology here, the topic of our uh, main conversation today. And I want to start by um, talking about a video I saw from your lab on your website. It was about 10 years ago. And I love this. I was before I, I, I did see that when it was until after I watched it, because then I became curious. And so, of course, you know, this is the iPad tablet study. Oh my God, so fascinating. The difference of how kids were on tablets in terms of their engagement, communication, attention, interaction on and off. Like literally like yeah. this, that old great commercial, this is your brain and here's your brain on drugs, yeah. right? With the egg. Um, fascinating. So tell everyone yeah. about, the, about that study. Yeah, so it was, I mean, study's a, a big word for it because it really was like a um, sort of a one-time experiment for... Um, a qualitative, morning, a qualitative study. Yeah, yeah. For one of the morning TV yeah. shows yes. said, can we come in? And um, which is that you could see this incredible change in children's engagement and affect on the pads, not for all children. I want to make that, right? Children vary. But for some children, that pad was all consuming. And when we took them away, but gave them ample opportunity to engage and play with toys. There are some children who could not make that switch. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. just sort of withdrew in that way that many of us yes. have seen our own children, whether that's TV or a computer or a handheld device of some kind. Um, the difference was quite remarkable, even in this short period, which is kind of what 
I had suggested what happened. So there it was that some children really could not re-engage in a very appropriate play environment with choices of interesting things to play with. Um, so that, you know, I think that was eye-opening and iPads were really new then. I, I got lucky because when the iPads came out, a dad I knew was working for a company that was one of the first to get into the child space. He said, can I give you an iPad, which I had never seen for a week? And will you play with it and tell me what you think for children? And I was like, okay, I don't even know what this thing is. So mm-hmm. just being part of that has given me ample room to think about what do children need and what mm-hmm. don't they need? It's both because this mm-hmm. is our world that we live in. Right. And I was surprised. Of course, we have most of many of us have time warp with COVID years and such. But but so that um, that that study, that qualitative study yeah. um, was 10 years ago, 2013. It was like, wow. And that was the beginning. Yeah. And now it's, of course, uh, such a part of our culture. So in that we see just the impact that technology has on our kids' behavior. And of course, there's been a lot of research on how it affects their brain development. And now we're all dealing with a brand new phenomenon. I mean, let me say, AI has been around for a long time, artificial intelligence, but we haven't, the mainstream person isn't aware of it. It's only now that this has become a part of our, present day culture, our present day marketing and, and a conversation of, wait, is this real? Is this not real? Can we use this? Should we use Mm -hmm. this? Is this better than a human? Is this where, so gosh, I mean, it's, I actually went to a talk a couple of weeks ago on this topic as well. So I'm, I'm so interested in hearing your thoughts on this. And also you spoke yesterday at, um, the family online safety Institute about this very topic. So, I'm just going to open this up broadly. What is your, uh, we'll try to get somewhere. Yeah. What, what is, what is your overall take on chat GPT and AI in general in our society as it's, as yeah. it's rolling out? It's a huge question. Yes, it is. Yeah. I, and I want to give like so a little context to this too, which is I'm a college professor. And so I have, I feel like it's a luxury of having interactions with three big groups of people, toddlers and children, parents and college students at Barnard and Columbia. So I have these incredibly thoughtful, curious, smart students. And my entree into ChatGPT was through the college because last year it was the discussion at department meetings, at faculty meetings. I kept listening, I have to say, with like, maybe a little more than half an ear, three quarters listening, like, what is that chat GPT? Do I really need to know about this? And then a few weeks, like three, I would say after that first meeting, like three or four weeks later, I get a draft of a kind of research paper from a group of students. And there's a citation, I'd ask them to annotate some citations. And there's one in it. I'm like, oh, I don't know that study. And I actually thought this study could help me with a talk I was giving the next week. And I look it up and I can't find it. Hmm. So that was my entree into ChatGPT because I had to say, oh, wait, is that that thing? Mm-hmm. So I think anybody who know, I don't know, I mean, none of us know that much about ChatGPT unless you're a developer of some kind. But what I do know is that ChatGPT does not do citations well. So 
anybody listening who's a researcher or is a writer, like, do not think you mm-hmm. care. Um, so that was kind of my entree, which then got me thinking, like, anything else I do. So what does this mean for children more broadly? Plus, I had been hearing from teachers during the pandemic and even a little before, like elementary and middle school teachers in some school systems, some suburban school systems, um, that their schools wanted to go to these like, I guess, AI kind of teaching where it can be very individualized. And the teachers were very concerned about it, that it actually wasn't giving children fully what they needed. So that's kind of the context. And I use that to really think about, you know, the question that media always has is, is this harmful? Right. And the way I think about that is, particularly for for young children, but really for all children. So if we put teens in a separate category, just for right now, mm-hmm. um, because they're part of a continuum of child, they're not that separate, and yet they are separate, um, is that children always need their parents. And the back and forth interacting of mm-hmm. that relationship that they have is going to remain the most important thing in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, even as they move into the peer world and even teenagers keep coming back for check-ins and guidance and structure and limits. So the question is then how do you put chat GPT in there for children? And I think a big piece of it is are helping children understand that information is not always accurate. Mm-hmm. So, how did you, oh, how did, where did you get that information? And let's see, let's see about that, you know, where that comes from. Oh, do you think that's actually true? Let's find out if it's true. And we've known this for a long time because of all the misinformation in the world. And that got a lot of media press in the last, let's say, five to eight years, is that we really have to help children know you know, what information is, where is it coming from? So that's one piece. The other way I think about it is ChatGPT might give us all kinds of new, even creative ways to interact, but it's one tool. And I, it really has to be thought of as a tool. Mm-hmm. It's not, when children are learning, they are ch- learning in all their modes, right? Hearing, seeing, touching, manipulating. I mean, problem solving is trying something many different ways. So just having an answer, even a good answer, mm-hmm. is not real learning for children, mm-hmm. right? The excitement of learning is, oh, I figured that math problem out. Mm-hmm. And if you're a middle school kid who worked on that math problem for days and then figured it out, you feel great. Someone gives you the answer, right. even if you've had to do some manipulations to get there on the computer, it doesn't feel the same. Okay, few things here going through my mind. One is what I'm hearing about parents are needed. It makes me think of whether we're talking, whether we're watching a difficult show or movie, or we're t- uh, talking about a traumatic situation like war, like is wars that are happening right now. Yeah. How important parents are to mediate, to moderate, to ask questions, to be present, mm-hmm. to help filter the information. And I'm hearing a very similar thing as we move towards into 
uh, artificial intelligence and how that um, how kids are will be interacting at times with bots without knowing it, and we'll we'll get to that. Right. Two, um, when I'm hearing, I, I'm in total agreement about the difference between being given an answer and um, having to solve a problem and learn from it, and then gain in your self confidence. To me, the challenge is um, knowing my um, teenage clients and college student clients is there's such a push on GPAs and achievement and grades. And you know this in your Ivy League world at the pressure. I feel a lot of people are going, it's like, yeah, yeah, I don't have time to learn. I need to get an A. You know, and I've got, I'm so overscheduled, I just need to get this done and I need to keep up with everyone else who's using these things too, because now I'm being graded in comparison to people who are using this technology, which may or may not be kosher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say a couple of things about it. This FOSI conference that I was just at, and, and um, for me, it was an exciting thing to be part of because I come from a psychology child development you know, background and, you know, sort of curiosity. And there were all these tech people and really thoughtful uh, leaders in their spaces. And they had done a, a study with a big qualitative component um, of teenagers and parents in three countries, in Japan, Germany, and the U.S. And one of the things that came out of that was that um, people are very curious, particularly in the U.S., about this new technology, but both teens and parents agreed that parents know more about it right now than the teens do. So mm. it's an interesting moment, right? Because when in our lifetimes of technology have parents been thought to be the ones with more knowledge, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So right. I think it's an important moment. I don't know how long that will last, but not very, um, yes. not very long. But one of the comments I made was that, you know, for parents, we're going into this um, at the same time as our children, whereas I think a lot of other technology came so fast at us and the children picked up on it faster. Maybe we're all in it enough mm -hmm. that we can digest something new so we can both be intrigued by it and worried about it. But there have been lots of ways to cheat even before technology, let's face it. Oh, yes. I'm aware of right. I'm aware of many. Yes. 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 So um, somebody at the conference said, well, I used to write on my hand, you know, and I was, right. I was like, what about cliff notes, right? Right. So it's not that getting ahead is new. It's, as you know, the pressure on parents and then the pressure on children or teenagers just goes up, up, up. Mm -hmm. And colleges and universities are bearing a huge brunt of it even if they're partly responsible for it, it's both, which is the, the level of stress and anxiety and depression in students is very, very high. So lots of places are expanding their mental health services, which were already pretty big, or they're putting in wellness programs. Mm -hmm. Barnard has a big wellness initiative, recognizing, again, mental health is not some separate thing. It's an everyday thing for everyone. How do we take care of ourselves? So I think the important piece for those of us in the field, the two of us talking, is that we continue to work on this pressure and anxiety is not good for children. No. 
children mm-hmm. broadly defined up to young adults. Mm-hmm. It's not good for them. It doesn't benefit them. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've said to parents, well, there's probably, I don't know, throw out a number, 200 good colleges your child could go to. Right. Not right. just the five that they think exactly. or you think or the teacher right. thinks. Right. They're sometimes shocked. Really? Do you think so? Like, yes. I know so. Right. Not just think on this one. I know. Yes. The hard part is which you know handful are you going to introduce them to? Or are they going to meet with? Right. Um, so I, I feel like not to blame the media for everything, but it's much more interesting for media to scare people. Mm-hmm. Because that gets our attention. I, you know, I see a headline, you know, pop up on my phone. I'm like, oh, I better read that. Um, but it would be a better stance if we stood back and said, you know, we got through the move to phones, we got through iPads, we'll get through this. So, what's a reasonable amount of anything? Um, oh, I like that. What is a reasonable amount of anything? Anything, and that includes anything. AI. That includes AI, that includes how much you're going to allow or work with your child or teenager to be on their phone. Um, and and I, I get concerned just as much about the parents in this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, as you know, if you have a parent who goes, well, I think a little cheating just to get ahead, just lets them do whatever he, all of their friends are doing. And if somebody's listening and they say, do parents really do that? Every parent has to say to themselves, what role am I playing in that mm-hmm. to get my child ahead as opposed to who is my child? How do I support them for who they are? Yes. Yes. And really see them for who they are. And that's not about getting ahead. Mm-hmm. It's about who is this child in front of me? And I, again, you're, I'll go back to your example, which is such a good example of two children who sort of seem to sail through life somewhat. Right. I'm sure the parents were supportive and then one who needed the parents to really understand who is this child mm-hmm. we do it for all of our children yes sometimes automatically and that sometimes at moments for one child where we're like pushed oh my goodness i really don't understand either what's going on or what he needs or why she's doing this and then you're forced to kind of wake up mm-hmm. and i think again it you know to you might be thinking well what does that have to do with chat gpt I think it's really about, do we want our children always to get ahead and ahead of whom or what? I mean, right. The race to nowhere. The race to nowhere. Yeah. Right. That was a great term because, you know, most people will struggle at some part point in their life. If you're a tuned in parent tuned in enough, again, doesn't have to be like Mm -hmm. full force 24 seven you're going to be there when your child is really having a hard time, whether they're still living at home or they're in a dorm or they're out in life, you're going to move in closer Mm -hmm. for them when they need you. And most people do okay in life, even if they suffer from some kind of mental health, some crisis. So we have to really start to step back and say, if there's ways to get ahead, is that really in my child's best interest? Or do I really want what, what's in my child's best interest? He's yes. obsessed with robotics. Let's look into robotics rather than, you know, Completely. topping out on that other thing. Completely. I um, 
I know you have many examples of this over the year from an inside perspective at the schools where you teach. Um, I could say being on the outside and counseling countless amount of teenagers and their parents over the last few decades. Um, I can't bang the drum loud enough that to congratulate some of these students of getting into their reach schools and trying to help them in a not undermining process to be like, let's look at like, yes, you have the sticker, you have the keychain, but let's look at the place that is good for you. For and you. so many of these clients coming back after crashing and burning where they got into that school, but it was not for them. And, and it's not that they didn't grow from it because of course, in all of these experiences, there's growth opportunity. Um, but to your point about, first of all, there's so there's what oh, five thousand colleges and universities in the country. There are at least two hundred good ones for everyone. The other myth is that people think if there's a higher acceptance rate, the college or university right. is less good. That is not true either. Right. And and I also want to add what you're talking about with parent expectations, or, or I wanted to add like the the awareness of a parent's expectations as it relates to ChatGPT and AI, we, so there's They're going to have peer pressure. They're going to have their little community pressure, but then what are we as parents inadvertently or intentionally putting on them that would push them to use some of these tools in a way right. that's not good for them or it's not, it's not legal. It's, or it's, yeah. it's like you can get kicked out of your school. Right. Or not because, you know, the colleges and universities are also grappling with, you know, what's plagiarism and what's, you know, assistance, because that I think is one of the tricky things from my understanding of chat GPT, which is really just the short time it's been out reading what I can trying it after a while, I thought, well, I better try this thing. Like, what is this thing? Um, and trying to understand it, which is, it it may be very good for many tasks. Like at this mm -hmm. conference, people were talking about, in this study, parents were like using it for, I forget the term they were using, but like, it's great for organizational stuff. It, you know, it might be great for financial um, pieces. Like there's all kinds of ways that you can harness it to help you. I, I spoke to a coder recently who said, oh my gosh, for basic coding? Yeah, I just put it in. I get the basic codes. And I said, is that cheating? And he said, no, for two reasons. One is, you know, it's like what I would call boilerplate when I'm, you know, if you're submitting a grant or something, you've got all this boilerplate. You don't want to always reinvent it. ChatGPT can help you with that. But he said, but then you have to be a programmer because one is it makes mistakes. But he goes, you know, it's like getting a first draft that's an okay first draft, but not very good. And then he has to clean it up and then he has to build on it. So he said, no, no, I'm building everything else. Mm -hmm. And I said, is it accurate? He said, well, no, it's not perfect, but it'll give me the basics. Mm -hmm. That might yeah. be a good task, but you have to have a certain amount of knowledge first. And I've found mm -hmm. that, in, again, talking to students or I've tried it a couple times. I was asked to respond to something recently on bullying. And so I kind of put all my points together and I was about to send it off. And then I thought, oh, maybe that chat GPT thing. I didn't even quite remember how to get on. I was like, okay, I've got to mm -hmm. use this. Let me see what it tells me mm -hmm. thinking, oh, it's going to have like some really outstanding point and I'm going to 
then I'm going to have to say, do I take that? Was it me? It gave me nothing new, which was actually disappointing to me. And then I had to remember, mm-hmm. well, it's calling from what's out there already. It's not, it, it can take all of that and respond in a new way. Right. But it's still calling from a very, very, very large database. That's the difference. You know, mm-hmm. it's these language databases and it can make predictions. And, I, you know, from everything I read, it's going to get better and better and better. But right now, mm-hmm. it's probably going to get students into more trouble than not, is my guess. Like my incident last year, which is what got me interested in the whole topic. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, like, again, I think as as parents, it, this goes back to, I don't know if you remember this book by Richard Weisbord. Now, who knows, it could have been 15 years ago the parents we mean to be where he really talked about this, like, so you're pushing your children to get ahead. Is that morally who you think you are Mm -hmm. and who we think we are? And then what we do in our actions. And I just thought it was such a great book. I still recommend it to parents Mm. because he really pushes to grapple with that piece about, we do convey our values to our children every single Mm day. Yes. Yes. And we role model. And again, you might, mess up. We all do. And then you say, you know what? I said that, or I did that. And here's why I think it was not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Those are all teachings and children and teens absorb us. Even teens who say, I don't want to hear you. I don't need your opinion. They're still watching us. Oh yes. um, Every step of the way. So yeah, I mean, I wish I could, could get parents to really feel like your children will be okay if you're yeah. good enough to them and could we yeah. all exhale a little bit, it would make the world better for every single child who then becomes an adult. Yes. All right. Dr. Tova, that was, that was, um, very, uh, nurturing. So everyone, we're all going to take a deep breath. I'm finding myself. I'm not breathing. So we're all going to take a deep breath right now together. And just exhale because I think your words are so important. They're all going to be okay if we're good enough. And what, and, good what is, enough. and what is good enough? Good enough is we care. We're trying to be aware. We, um, when we make a mistake, we go back to repair. We, um, we try some things. If it doesn't work, we try some different Something things. Exactly. We give our kids space. We let them know we're around when they need us if they just don't want to be with like. And of course, this changes through the, the, the life yeah. course of childhood. And that is good enough, everyone. And yes, we don't know what AI is going to do. And we don't know about global warming. And we don't know the impacts of our politics. And we don't know about how these wars are going to turn out. We have to focus right now on raising just good human beings. Yes, yes. But I keep saying that it's, this is about, I'm writing a, a, another book and I say, what's people are like, what's it, you know, what's the core of it? I say, it's about raising decent human beings. Oh, I love Isn't that. Isn't that what we need? Yes. Like, yes. We, and, and also I think to remember that children are forgiving in a loving relationship mm-hmm. where there's care and there's enough decency. Children yes. are forgiving. Yes. Right. They tell us when we're wrong. And yes. depending on their personality, they really tell us when we're wrong. Yes. yes. <laughs> and they, uh, yeah. but eventually they forgive because, you know, they want to be with us as much as we want to be with them eventually. Mm-hmm. It is the long haul. And this is where I think of um, Dr. Kenneth Ginsburg, a wonderful pediatrician yeah. um, researcher on your side of the country. Um, and 
he just talks about, you know, our relationship with our kids as kids, if all goes as planned, is very short compared to our relationship with yes. our kids as adults. And we need to focus on that long haul, long, long want, term relationship. Yeah. We want them to want to return mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. You know, to say, hey, I'll see you then. Or say, you know, those random texts that I get from one of my children who are young adults, right? They're like, hey, do you have a minute? And I'm like, oh, yes, of course. Of course. (laughs) Out of the blue, right? You want that. You want them to want to be with you when they want to be with you and to Mm -hmm. know you're there. So, yeah, it's it's a long time. Um, People say, I don't know where your kids are what point of life but people say to me so you're done being you know you're done I'm like I'm not done I mean my youngest is in college but I'm Mm -hmm. still mom and they still oh yeah come home and we still play games and we still enjoy each other like it's a funny way that society oh thinks of this as this finite um no yeah. At least not our experience. We have 19, 21, and 23 right now. How about? Oh, I have almost the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's never, it's not done. It just changes. Yeah, it changes. Yeah. yeah. I used to think, oh, what am I going to do when they're older? Like, I know young. It's so delightful and so delicious. Um, but you have to be willing to change with them and their needs. Absolutely. It's on us. It's on Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And so, so circling back to our, um, the topic of AI and parenting at this age that we are both doing, it's, it's, it's like, it's collaboration and it's, it's learning with and from them. And that's what my wife and I find ourselves all the time now is like learning so much from our kids and joining them as someone who's another human being who's lived longer, but doesn't know all the stuff that they know, you know? So like teach us. So I think when it comes to AI, we're going to be all learning about this together, Together. I guess, regardless of how old our kids are, but particularly what you're saying, when the kids are young, really need to be there to, um, to mediate, to interact, to explain, and to, um, to be very mindful about this relationship with the artificial. Yeah, mindful and quite intentional around, you know, usage and and rules around it. Um, But also, I would say to know it yourself. You know, if I had young children, I certainly am interacting with parents with young children all the time. It's, you know, you want to know what this is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not a tech lover. I should give that disclaimer. You know, if I had had my way, I would have been like, okay, no one's ever going to have a smartphone in my house. I mean, that wasn't going to ever work. And I knew that. But um, we were definitely late adopters mm-hmm. for our kids and they're kind of grateful now, right. but at the time may not have been, but, um, but it's this idea that none of us have the luxury of kind of keeping our head in the sand. So even if you're a busy parent, you might want to look into what is this thing mm-hmm. and what could it be good for, or at least know what it is mm-hmm. so that when your child's saying, Hey, do you think I could use this for this purpose? You actually have mm-hmm. an educated way to respond or to say, let's look at this together. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, or what did your teacher say about the use of it? I mean, we all had to change our syllabi at the university, right? Mm-hmm. Around this, but, but that's not new. It's new for chat GPT or AI but that's been through time. 
you know, we've always had to, to update mm-hmm. depending mm-hmm. on what was available, you mm-hmm. know, at, at students' disposal. And so I think honest conversations about, well, what does it mean to learn and what does it mean to be a thinker? Um, but for parents to know that their relationship, that relationship is what makes that human being that their child is and is is currently and will become, you know, in the future as well, their relationship with that child is much more important than the technology. So you have to figure out that interface. Okay, how much do I want to know so I can guide them, listen to them, and respond? Like when the teacher inevitably for some parents calls and goes, oh, your child's been caught. Right. We don't even know what being caught is yet because... We're not sure if this is a teaching tool, a learning tool, or a plagiarism tool, or all of the above. Right. That's what's kind of fun and funny about it. it. It's the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. It's the beginning. Okay. We're going to, we're going to leave, we're going to stop with the complete grayness and subjectivity of where we are at this place in time. And I think that's a good way to look at it. Whereas, we don't have to have all the answers. And, and I think as parents, we sometimes think we have to have all the answers. And no, we're growing people who are trying yeah. to adapt to an ever-changing world as well. And um, let's get educated and let's be curious. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love? (laughs) That's such a big question. So I was like, oh, how do I think about that question? Um, What I'm going to say is is a more recent, in the more recent years, that um, during the pandemic, my parents, who were already aging, uh, got sick or or continued in sickness, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic complicated that. They lived in a different city. And so I had a lot of back and forth and being with them. And one of the real discoveries for me was how natural it was for me to be a caregiver. Because when your parents age, slowly over time, the adult child takes on caregiving roles. And like something you said earlier, you can't really be prepared for so many things. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure anything prepares us for that. Um, so as I became more of a caregiver, I was actually, I guess, pleasantly surprised by how easy that was for me. Hard because they were sick, hard because I was losing them, but that it was such a natural drive for me to go and to be there and want to be there and want to have some of those conversations I knew I wasn't going to be able to have in time. Mm. Um, And what did that do for my children? I think it was an incredible role model because I was gone. I was back and forth. And one of my children said to me at some point, don't worry, mom, I got you. And I said, now? And he said, yeah. And even later I said, oh, you're thinking of me? (laughs) And I was like, I'm not going to be that old for a long time. And he was like, but I'll do this for you. And I thought, wow, like they are really seeing this is what we do when we love each other, even in complicated relationships with Mm -hmm. parents. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like it was an awareness for me and something I could give to them. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. The 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 secondary, I mean, the primary um, pull, of course, to take care of your parents, and then the secondary and powerful gain that you didn't yeah. even properly consider when you no, were doing this. Never. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Once again, everyone, our kids are always watching. They're always listening. And the good old do as I say, not as I do. Oh, we wish that actually was true. But it, that that's not how it works, right? So yeah. the good news is you don't always have to come up with the most brilliant pieces of wisdom. Just living your day-to-day life is instructive. Um, and it has been for their lives and it will continue to no matter how old we all get together. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Tova, thank you so much for joining me today. Tell everyone, so you have your, you have your previous book, you have a new book that's going to be coming out at some point. Um, tell everyone where they can find everything you're doing. Yeah. So I have, my first book is how toddlers thrive, which is really about those early years. I have a website, um, howtoddlersthrive.com or tovacline.com. And that book is available at bookstores, online, you name it. Um, and I am working on a new book that will that goes across ages and covers a lot of what we talked about today in terms of parents and children in this uncertain world. And that will be out in September 2024. All right. So um can I, can we, let's, I'm penciling you in. Can we have another conversation <laughs> when your next book comes out? I would love to, because it's going to be about resilience as Beautiful. sort of the big thing of raising decent human beings. Awesome. I cannot wait yeah. to read it and talk again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please send, share this episode with everyone you think and know will benefit. Thank you for being a part of our community. We appreciate your five-star reviews. They mean a lot to us. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question. I ask myself a lot. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com.